0: Welcome to the
1: 5 Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host Shane Hazen. Coming up today, Ben Fritz, author of The Big Picture, a book out on paperback. Uh, one of the my favorite, most recommended books recently on the, um, what the studios are thinking as technologies are changing and our formats of watching are changing. Um, but first up, what did I watch this week? Um, uh, well, first off... Uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, even though it's uh, kind of uh, not the most illustrious backdrop, um, I'm still in um, New York. I'm in Brooklyn. A whole I moved a whole three miles. Um, that's winding down, but um, it was a, it was a busy, busy week. Uh, I was with I, the job I'm on was really really good, but it um, was a re- very fulfilling job. Um, but um, so because of that, I didn't see as much as I was hoping to, especially. You know, being in New York at the end of the year when all it feels like everything's being dumped, especially pre-Christmas, I got to see. I had the chance to see so much stuff pre-Christmas and didn't get to it. I saw. Um, I mentioned on last week's episode. I was going to try to see *Marriage Story* for a second time and see it in thirty-five millimeter. Now, um, literally after recording the intro, I went and saw it at IFC, and it was a DCP. I I saw it digitally. Um, I guess it's the Paris Theater somewhere in Midtown is the theater which um, Ben and I talk about actually later in our in, in the episode um, one of the theaters Netflix bought out and is going to maybe show their movies there. Um, I also saw uh, Pedro Almodovar's um, Pain and uh, Pain and Glory, which um, I, I lapsed on Almodovar. Um, he's he's obviously a great filmmaker. Um, I mean, um I think The um, Skin I Live In was the last one I saw of his and this one, um, was good. I mean, you may it's 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 been talked t- touted as a return to form. Um, it's been on a bunch of top ten lists and stuff, and so I wanted to make a point of seeing it before I l- left and it's the thing I love a lot about Midavar's movies is that um, they're they're um, they're weirdly, for as personal idiosyncratic as they are, they're oddly very tightly plotted. And they're very, they're just, they, there's not a lot left to waste in, and they can get very devastating. Especially when you look at his streaks from somewhere of like, talk to her, or bad education, or that period, or all about my mother. And this one, I want to say, didn't feel like that. Um, you may have heard how autobiographical it is, and I don't really want to spoil exactly how that's the most distinct part about it that and the ending it impacted me but not the way his last few movies um, have but as for um, the other thing I saw this week it was this tiny tiny movie um, that um, some of you may have heard of called uh, Star Wars Rise of the Skywalker (laughs) yeah I did that joke where I took the giant uh, blockbuster and pretend no one's heard of it Um, so yeah that movie's a mess Um, um, I was, I, J.J. I, J. Abrams is a really talented, really fun filmmaker. His movies are, for the most part, with the exception of maybe Super 8, always going to be fun to watch, um, so let's get that out of the way. Um, the best thing I've ever read about describing J.J. J. Abrams is a film, Crit Hulk, did an essay about the impact of Force Awakens and Star Trek Into Darkness, and it talked about how... Um, it almost compared his filmmaking style to that of a golden retriever who's constantly trying to please you in the moment but if you get away uh, ten minutes uh, away from the movie everything just doesn't uh, stitch together and one particular example he used was um, the carol marcus character in star trek into darkness um, spoiler over on that movie watches her dad die and screams really really dramatically and the movie never addresses that moment ever again. Um, so to give him the tall order of trying to not only end this uh, really not the most coherent Disney Star Wars trilogy, but also to uh, try to tie up uh, all nine movies, which um, I am a I am a um, Star Wars prequel apologist. I uh, there's a lot of things I like about them, and one of the things i had vague hopes on i i probably should have been smarter about is that there's a lot of loose storylines left open for the prequels that could have been interesting and he abrams in his uh, interviews were giving it was giving a lot of lip service talking about the prequels i saw one where he talked about my favorite prequel scene which is in revision of the sith is the uh darth plagueis scene where um palpatine talks uh talks to anakin about um um resurrecting um um, I forget exactly the topic. But anyway, what's cool about that scene is it was ghost written by Tom Stoppard. And it's just... well. The other thing to note about J.J. Abrams, one director I had worked with a few years ago made a point about J.J. Abrams. Um, I had said that I thought that he was particularly good at setups, but terrible at endings. And we agreed on that. But he then made the point that Abrams is incredibly, incredibly good at casting so all these characters involved in this movie are very charming and um, another review I read made the point that most every Abrams movies are all about just chases and just running from one thing to another and MacGuffin after MacGuffin and this movie um, is definitely that so um, that being said I should see it again maybe not like I normally would with a Star Wars movie or a blockbuster where I want to see it right away like it it definitely felt like a um, very confused movie that was trying to do a lot. And God bless the movie. Um, I hope it makes um, money for the people involved, and as we, um, particularly the company that uh, put the money into it, which uh, actually leads us into our, our guest. <laughs> so i read ben fritz's book maybe a year year and a half ago i want to say slash film and recommended it and um i was immediately taken with um um just very clear-eyed idea of like um with theatrical still going to be the main um way studios are making money is they're still Emphasis, but it's just talked a, a lot about um, different ways with the multinational corporations. Uh, um, I personally feel like I read a lot about it when it mainly happened in the 70s, and it killed the killed uh, the American new wave of the 70s. And I know in particular in the book he talks. The, the one of the more fascinating things to me was he talks about the current state of um, toy marketing or to- toy merchandising, and. You know, in my head I always think of things like, um, I'm annoyed that toy merchandising, uh, ruined the aforementioned Star Wars, original Star Wars trilogy, um, with Return of the Jedi where it seemed like Lucas saw how much money he was making with it and he had all the toy rights. And I haven't really thought about the current state in a while and I'm a big follower of the Marvel movies. I mean I've seen, seen them all and all. And one thing he points out that's very basic that just was kind of a light bulb moment for me, is if you've never noticed in like say the Iron Man movies or the Avengers movies why every character just has something slightly in every different movie from their parents whether it's a costume change is slightly different or their haircut is slightly different or they have a beard or their hair color is different that is to sell a different set of toys for each set of movie and um, there's uh there's a great narrative in the book uh, also being a big comic book reader I've been following Marvel for most of my reading life and uh not a lot of people seem to know that marvel was on the verge of bankruptcy in the late 90s and toy biz bought them out and um so with this merchandising thing and whenever marvel really first started to try to put out their own movies the merchandising was the big motive behind it which the book and i mean book talks about this i guess i was just um negligent and paying attention to this and when when this was first happening but um I mean, among other things, there's so many. Like, um, he uses the Sony hacks, the email hacks, as a source, a significant source to show a lot of what's happening with Sony in the mid '00s, or the mid or the mid 2010s mainly, and um, there's. There's just a lot of cool stories in there, insider stories. Um, but for the most part, uh, he's a very. The book is very, very forward-thinking, and this is. I'm actually relatively happy with this interview because uh, I put on my big boy pants, and uh, Ben is uh, editor for the Wall Street Journal, and um, meanwhile, I'm a guy that reads stuff off the internet in the Midwest, and he. We. I seem to be, as far as I could tell, engaging him. So uh, he didn't seem annoyed at some of these questions. Um, So without further ado, here's Ben Fritz. What level from one to ten would you consider yourself a film fan?
0: Oh, gee, I would say like an eight. I love movies. I, you know, um, I grew up watching them. I still love to go to the theater. I see a lot of cool indie movies, but I'm not as like well-versed in film history as I, as I would like to be, and as people I really admire, as you know, great film lovers are, and I don't know quite as much about you know filmmaking technique and so on as again people who really really love film are. How so.
1: how far back do you think your expertise goes for film history or so?
0: I mean, the I mean, I I wouldn't consider myself uh, have any great expertise before the '80s before I started watching movies. I've certainly seen plenty of movies from before then, but. You know, I haven't, I haven't seen, like, enough of, you know, 70s or 60s or 40s cinema to sort of say I, I could say anything comprehensive. What were your yeah. big movies as a kid? Oh, man, um, I mean, the first movie I remember seeing in a the theater was Return of the Jedi.
1: Oh, well, um, I, I think you and I may have had the exact same first movie in the theater. Yeah, that's I, awesome, yeah. Possibly, yeah.
0: Really? I mean, of course I loved it. And I, and I, the I remember my parents had just uh, broken up. And I got both of them to take me separately, I didn't tell, I told my mom I had not gone with my dad and vice versa, you know. Um, so that was the first benefit of the, their breakup. Um, uh, the first movie I remember loving just like watching over and over on the you know videotape is uh, Spaceballs. I thought that was the funniest thing, you know, like ever made when I was, whatever year that was when I was maybe 9 or 10. Okay. Um, and then, you know, as I got older um, and sort of could appreciate cinema, shall we say, um, let see, I remember Pulp Fiction blew my mind when mm-hmm. I saw that. W- when did you see that? I mean, I was in high school, right? We, that's 94? Nine, yeah, it was 94. Right. Would you, you,
1: did you see it in the theater or on video?
0: Oh, yeah. I saw it saw in the theater, for sure. By that time, I was definitely a film fan. That I, every year, I would go see all the Best Picture nominees. Okay. Um, uh, where so are you, the, Where are you from? I grew up in suburban New York and Connecticut. Okay.
1: Um, Yeah. So you were a multiplex kid?
0: Yeah, mostly multiplexes. There were like a couple of art house theaters that eventually once I could drive, I sort of tracked down. Um, But yeah, it was mostly the local multiplexes. Okay. Um, Um,
1: What do you consider your big movies in the teen years then, say post-Pole Fiction?
0: Around then, well, look, I mean, on the nerdy side, at some point in there, I became a Star Trek fan, and I've seen every Star Trek film, so...
1: I, I don't want to angle the computer, but if, I don't know if you can see it, there's a Rathicon poster back there. I,
0: oh, I can't see it, but very nice. Yeah. Very nice, that's very cool. Um, I have, a, I have a, like, a poster from the original motion picture, which is obviously a terrible film, but, like, it's an awesome poster, actually. It's, a, it's an amazing
1: poster. It's also, yeah. It's, 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 it's also... It, it's an interesting watch on the big screen, especially, too. Just the, oh, I've
0: never I've never seen it on the big screen.
1: Yeah, the, the those effects really engulf you in, a, in an interesting oh. way. But, That's I mean, cool.
0: Yeah, I shouldn't say, uh, terrible is overstating it. It actually is an interest. it's like an interesting failure, well, I should say. Actually,
1: well, like, I, think I think your I think reaction of, uh, it's cool, is actually the one of the best reviews you can have of the motion picture, with that kind of half-hearted, eh,
0: uh, yeah. okay, it's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: interesting efforts. Um, so, um, I guess, um, you, where did you go to college?
0: I went to Swarthmore, which is a small school near Philadelphia.
1: Okay. It was, uh, what was your major?
0: I majored in political science and economics. Okay. I took, yeah, I took one journalism class. The, the two relevant classes for my career were not at Swarthmore. You could take classes at other nearby schools. So I took a journalism class at Penn in Philadelphia And I actually took a film class at Bryn Mawr, which is a women's college nearby where we could take classes.
1: Okay. Well, how did
0: journalism come in then? I just always loved newspapers and magazines growing up. And specifically, I remember in the high school library or the local library when I was in high school reading Variety and finding it super interesting. Um, Just the idea that there really was like a business behind movies and TV and sort of you know you could be really savvy about what was getting made and why and understanding the box office and ratings i just always found that really interesting um and so you know i i mean i tried other things but certainly like i was always drawn to journalism and i just loved it and i worked at the school paper and everything and then um you know i wanted what i wanted to do with my with my career was hopefully do something that i loved right and then um I decided I wanted to at least learn about the entertainment industry, and it turned out by luck that the then editor in chief of Variety went to Swarthmore, the same college I did. And I reached out to him, and um, he suggested I apply for an internship there, which I did. And uh, that's sort of what got me started on my career as an entertainment business reporter.
1: Was that where you first um, you got? Was that your first byline in Variety or? Yes,
0: um, no, my first, was or, my first staff job. My first bi- professional byline was in salon.com. Oh, nice.
1: I, I love salon. Was it back in the yeah. day, especially?
0: Yeah. Yeah, back, back when they had a lot of money in like the, probably 99 or 2000. Um, but we yeah, have variety. My, the internship, I did after a couple, I did a couple other things. I was in AmeriCorps and, uh, then I came back and then I eventually became a staff reporter there when, in like 2004, I think. Okay. Um, so that was my, that was my first staff job.
1: Okay. So, um when you write for variety how much um how much does the bi- business side overtake the uh enjoyment side of movies
0: huh. that's an interesting question i never i never found that it um like i enjoyed it less because i wasn't involved in the making of them you know like becoming a journalist made me like enjoy some journalism a little less because i could think a lot about how it got wrote written why they decided to do that story i'd compare it to what i was doing You know, but since I was not involved in the making of movies, it didn't make me enjoy them less. I mean, I obviously had a lot – the more I worked covering the business, I had a lot more savvy about understanding, oh, well, of course, Universal made this movie because the executives there are really interested in going after a comedy, let's say, Mm. or whatever. You know, I I understood their strategy. But, uh, you know, but it didn't – really didn't make me enjoy it any less. And if anything, it was great because I love movies and all of a sudden, like, I had so much more insight into how they got made and why – and I got to go to premieres, and I got to, like, for my job, I got to see a lot of movies, you know. It wasn't, like, something I had to do on the side. So no, it didn't it. actually, it actually really enhanced my love of movies, I would say.
1: Okay. I, I've always had this question about um, Variety and Hollywood Reporter and, yeah. I guess, later uh, Deadline Hollywood. Yeah. Um, especially because of their service of announcing projects. Like, mm-hmm. how much of, the, I mean, obviously they do some in-depth journalism. All of them do. And, right, yeah. but how much of it is... Um, them getting press releases and just rewarding press releases.
0: It's a fair amount. Like I always tell people, you know, I mean, working at the trades, at least when I did, it's sort of, the trades are sort of like they're half real newspapers or what, you know, web digital pub- news publications and they're kind of half community bulletin boards for Hollywood. Right. All where right. you sort of tell the industry, Hey, this is what I'm doing. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's press releases. Sometimes it's, Some, you know, some producer or studio executive or agent calling and being like, hey, my client's doing this. I would love to, you know, have it in Variety. Um, But, you know, a fair amount of it is sort of like, hey, I talk to an agent. They tell me, hey, I hear Universal is working on this movie. And then I call my sources Universal and confirm it. Um. So it is journalism, but it's a, it's a weird kind of journalism because obviously all ultimately you're just trying to find out like who's developing what project before they're ready to officially announce it sometimes. Yeah. Oh. And then in practice, of course, you might go to Warner Brothers and say, Hey, I hear you're making a new Batman movie. And they say, well, that's true. But if you give me a week till we finish the deals and we'll give it to you as exclusive, you know, there's a lot of course trading like that, that goes on. Um, it's certainly not the same as, you know, working at the wall street journal or the LA times by a long shot. Um, but so you definitely learn journalism skills, but a, lo- a lot of that getting the press release, like you're saying, getting the information is about relationship building, right? Like right. You wanna, I, I wanted to be the one who the studio executives or the agents or whoever wanted to talk to about the projects they're working on. Right. So and journalism, whether you're an investigative reporter for The Wall Street Journal or you're the beat reporter covering New Line, which I used to do for um, the for variety, it's all about relationships and building sources.
1: So how long were you at Variety?
0: Five years, from two thousand four to two thousand
1: nine. Where did you go from there?
0: Um, I was well. I was uh, after a brief spell of unemployment when I was laid off in the recession. Yeah, I, unemployment. Uh, yeah, I went to uh, I went to the L.A. Times and um, the team that they call Company Town, which is this t- small team of people where who we are we are business reporters, but we cover the entertainment industry. So we cover the we would cover I, I covered and my team covered the business of Hollywood.
1: Okay, is that a, a how long, again, how long were you there at LA Times, and was that what led to the Wall Street Journal?
0: It is, yeah. I was there for four years, from 2009 to 2013, and then from there I was recruited by the Journal. They were looking for an experienced entertainment industry reporter.
1: Okay. Um, so, uh, you're, so you had been in Variety when the uh, 2008 crash happened? Yes, exactly. So were you there whenever the, uh, what's it, the foreign markets or whatever, the DVD sales started to crash completely
0: and... Yeah, that was just start. That was just starting when I was, you know, when I was leaving Variety. It was something we were just starting to. I don't remember if we were had written about it yet at Variety. I mean, it was definitely something I wrote about a lot at the LA Times. By the, you know, when I was at the LA Times, it became clearer and clearer every year, and I wrote numerous stories about it. Um, at Variety, it was just beginning as I as I left, so it wasn't yet like a big story. I don't think.
1: Okay. Did you notice uh, either it was it gradual or obviously like suddenly there's a lot less projects or at the very least like i don't know how, how the studio reacted to it but it was the mid level that kind of got gutted wasn't it
0: yeah it was and i noticed that For first i noticed the dvd sales were falling and i was doing stories about that and then i started to notice yeah there were the first story i remember really doing where i could tell was i did a story i did a story where about comedies and about how there were fewer comedies were getting made and i remember i don't know what year that would have been maybe 2010 around there and I, the only time that I remember talking to a exec, top executive at one of the studios and he told me, oh, yeah, the reason is DVD sales. Like these movies used to do so much better on DVD. Now that's falling out. And we can, we, we, you know, we're making half as much as we used to on DVD. And the result is these comedies that were usually not consistently huge at the box office, like we can't and they were never big overseas. We can't afford to make them anymore because DVD was such a big revenue source. That was the first time I remember my eyes really being open to the fact that these falling DVD sales are having a big impact on what's getting made or not made by the studios
1: i'm sorry when was that do you remember
0: it was around 2010 i mean give or take a year
1: okay um i did want to not um bypass other accomplishments of yours you had written a book about uh president bush all the presidents spin or co-authored
0: that's very kind of you yeah it's um Right. So I, among the other things I did early in my career was I worked on uh, this blog back when blogs were a big deal in the early to mid 2000s with a couple of friends. And it was about politics in the media and how um, how uh, politicians can sort of deceive uh, without lying in the media. And we ended up writing a that, that blog did pretty well. It was on Salon. Were just got, it was in the Philadelphia Inquirer as a column. And then um, we. We got a book deal out of it and the book kind of focused on president Bush as our example of someone who sort of would deceive without lying. So I actually started that project before I, before I went full-time at variety and then I finished it sort of as I was soon after, I think I started at variety actually. And then I was, it was sort of a weird transition to be like, well, I'm sort of done with my little political reporting jaunt and now I'm focused on entertainment reporting.
1: Movies had taken over or movie reporting at the very least had taken over. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. um, So I I think I talked to you a little bit about the format of the show and that this is going to be slightly different just because um, the uh, your book, which I mentioned earlier, um, I name drop it so much just because um, I feel like it's a great overview of, of what the real incentives are for studios right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, people constantly just seem like they want to lament that um, studios are... are Content to dumbing down the masses, but the books like yours point to the reasons that um, They're just responding to what's making money or at least what the best they can with trends uh, as much as much as um, so um, I, I mainly want to talk to you about a bunch of forward-looking stuff like um, I should have I haven't read the paperback afterward to your book yet um, I assume it's about the Fox Disney merger
0: Fox, Fox Disney and all, it's about the main two points are Fox. Well, there's three main things I did. One is catching everybody up on what happened at Sony since the book ended. Number two is the Fox Disney merger. Yeah. And number three is just, is the big, what was then the early stages of streaming just really taking over. And at that point, movies were becoming a much bigger deal on, on Netflix and, um, and you could see, you could see Disney plus and uh, stuff like HBO max on the horizon. So mm-hmm. that's what it's about.
1: Okay. Not to, um, um, try to take away sales from your paperbacks but what okay. what ha- well. what has been happening at sony
0: uh well um let's see in since i wrote the book michael linton for example had left sony you know he's one of the big characters in the book he was the head of sony pictures um ceo uh during all the time the book covers and he left to focus on his job as chairman of snapchat and, uh, when, when he left, they immediately took like a huge write down, like a billion dollar write down at the studio. Um, this would have been right. The winter of, or maybe, maybe that's not in the afterward. I'm today. Maybe that's in the conclusion of the book. Cause he left, I that, guess it would have.
1: Snapchat part sounds familiar. I, I, yeah, it's not so hard. maybe
0: he left in 2017, in which case it would have been in the book. Um, I apologize. I might've had Tommy wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe what it covers... and Yes, then I guess what will happen after the book is sort of looking at Amy... A minimum, oh, the fact that the FBI finally concluded North Korea really was responsible for the hack. Oh. That's, you know, yeah, they finally, you know, were like, definitively, this is what happened. Um, and I talked a little bit about Amy Pascal's producing career um, and, uh, you know, how Spider-Man Homecoming did and, um, and she, you know, she's working on a sequel and she got nominated for uh, her Oscar. Um and she's kept a very low profile, um, and that Sony's started to come back like they've done reasonably well under Tom Rothman. Who's, you know, he replaced her. With you know, Jumanji did super well, um, uh, and surprisingly, Venom, uh, their Spider-Man off did really well. But they're still overall, everybody knows they're not they're not big enough to really compete with the Disneys and AT and T, Time Warner's of of the world. Um, and then yeah, and then as I said, sorry, yeah, that it talks a lot about um, about how about about the expanding. Netflix movie business and of course uh, Disney Fox. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, I know one big question I want to ask you about um, is just something that's bugged me. an increasing trend that's going for as long as I've been paying attention to movies is that um, the the risk aversion always comes down to people. Initially, it was just budget. It was a budget for the production, and then it started to sw- slowly turn over into the marketing budget. People would then start the number there was there's no, the numbers for marketing kept going up and up, but it ne- I you never would see anything that, or at least I'm asking you, did you ever see any correlation that the more money they spent on marketing, whether it's just, uh, you know, ad buys or, or just that justified these um, uh, studios being more risk-adverse and constantly going for lowest common denominators in their choices?
0: Are you saying, i a question. it's a question, is there a correlation between spending a lot on marketing and being successful? Is that the question? Yeah,
1: generally. Yeah.
0: Um, I just sort of look at it as think about it like the money you need for a presidential campaign, right? Like, it's not always the case that whoever spends the most wins, right? Like, I don't think anybody thinks Mike Bloomberg is likely to win the Democratic primary. Um, obviously, Jeb Bush didn't win the Republican primary last time. Um, on the other hand, if you don't have a certain amount of money, you can't compete, right? Like, you can't run for president if you don't have a decent amount of money. The same way, like you cannot open a movie nationally unless you have a certain amount to spend at the box to spend on marketing, like a minimum twenty million dollars, an absolute minimum. Like you just can't get anybody's attention, and it's virtually, It's extremely difficult. Um,
1: well, I guess and in I, reality, I guess as a sorry, film no. fan, what always annoyed me with that is that I, I maybe I just jumped to the outliers so much that you. I always want to find the exceptions, or I always want to like point out the. Yeah. Um, smarter use of the dollar um whether it's um on trying to do more um database or targeted ads or or something like that but i mean also it's just it just constantly seemed like risk aversion is is just an obnoxious reason not to make a good movie and well um, that's
0: totally that's totally true right i mean risk there's a very risk averse business and there's always a good it's always easy to say no and it's hard to say yes and if you say yes and it's a fuck up then everybody would be like, what are you doing, right, if you're a studio executive? But if you say no, nobody will ever know that it was a mistake in most cases. Um, So when it comes to marketing, yeah, I mean, like I said, you need a certain amount of money to get attention to to sort of rise above the clamor these days. Uh, On the other hand, like, absolutely, people often spend too much on marketing, and they all know it. But again, nobody, like... When if a movie doesn't do well and you get criticized by the producer of the film or your fellow executives and they say you could have just spent five million dollars more and on this thing you should I said you should have done this this ad buy, um, then you look then you know you could be in trouble basically like you might look like an idiot so there's a, too much too much incentive to play it safe and just buy a lot of TV ads and a lot of billboards. Um, what's always amazing to me and everybody talks about but nobody does is especially for these sequels where you sort of know who the audience is going to be, like nobody. You know, nobody knew, uh, um, was going to see, what's the latest example? There's not a lot of new people who are going to see Fast and Furious 10 who didn't see Fast and Furious 9, right? Sort of the same audience coming to see that every time they tend to perform about the same, or, you know, think of like the, the Twilight movies by the time they got to the last one, you could be like, these are the same people. If you could identify who they are and target them online and get them on email lists or whatever, you could presumably save a lot of money. How many billboards and TV ads do you really need? You're not going to reach any new audiences, right? You already know, most people already know if they like Fast and Furious or they like Twilight or whatever it may be. Um, but the studios have not been very savvy at getting uh, consumer data um, in the past. I think um, that, that
1: was a big question I had for you. Are, are, they, inv- are they trying to invest in that?
0: Yeah, I mean, that, look, that's a big part of the streaming push, right? If you become a, If you subscribe to Disney Plus or HBO Max or Peacock or whatever, they're suddenly going to finally get information on you. Um, they know who you are. They have your email address. They know what you're watching. So presumably Disney can look at all the people who are streaming Marvel movies and Marvel TV shows in Disney Plus. And when they open their next Marvel film, they can email you directly and say, hey, this, you know, it's it's opening in two months. Buy your advance ticket now. Here's a link to Fandango. You know, mm-hmm. as a Disney Plus subscriber, we'll give you a dollar off or why don't you pre pre-order the digital download of the Blu-ray or whatever. And we'll give you this amount of money off. Um, you can totally imagine them doing that. And if it's, if it's successful, then they could start, presumably they would be able to start to cut back on the amount of money they spend on TV ads and billboards and all that.
1: Do you have, um, this is slightly switching. Do you have any numbers about, um, where, um, um, theatrical's going, whether the theatrical viewership's going down or are, are there specific numbers that point to that but, or are they, are, they are. stabilizing? I,
0: I don't have them in front of me. So, but you can, if you just look at the annual box office, and then there's always uh, an average ticket price for the year, and you can just divide that to get how many tickets were sold, essentially. And the long term trend this century obviously it can vary a bit year by year, but the long term trend is that box office, if you account for inflation, is like roughly flat. But The number of tickets sold is slowly declining people are going people are going to movies less often they're buying fewer tickets
1: have you seen any graphs um for um talking about where streaming is in relation to this or i know one big thing i want to talk to you about is um, where like video games or um, teenagers looking at stuff on youtube or any court like graphs going with uh, numbers in the opposite directions
0: yeah, I mean, that's all been going right. I mean, it's not it's not entirely coincidence that throughout the 2000s, this has been happening while you've had the rise of the internet. Um, it's not like you can't ever directly correlate, like, hey, YouTube launches and all of a sudden, box, box office falls, you know?
1: Right, okay. Never that
0: simple. But I think any smart person would tell you, and surveys generally show, yeah, like, people are, have more, the more options people have, the less time they're spending on any one particular option. So, the more opportunities they have to entertain themselves at home or on their phones, the less incentive they feel to go to the theater. As it turns out, and it's a little sad for those of us who love movies and love movie theaters, one of the big reasons people went to movie theaters is because there was nothing else to do. Yeah. Right? I mean, look, in the 40s, the average American, like more than half of Americans saw went to the movie theater every week in the 40s, right? um it's insane to think about now but there was no tv right let alone anything no no internet so that was the only way to to be entertained um in in terms of like a kind of visual film medium uh over the summer
1: for me um i um i came from austin texas and i I had bad ac and i was literally going to the movies every day like as the 1930s just for ac
0: yeah there you go it was totally true right and i remember it was one of the few as a teenager one of the few things we could go out and do and also it's one of the few places where I could go to see something that spoke to me that I thought was cool and interesting. Because remember, before premium cable, before streaming, and something I talk about a lot in the book is, you know, TV was ad supported. And um, it was uh, mostly the broadcast network. So they, they were the lowest common denominator medium, because they just wanted the biggest audience possible, because they didn't care if you loved it, they just care if you kept it on. And then they could tell advertisers, people are watching it. And the more people watching, the more ads ad month revenue they could get. They didn't care if you liked it. They just cared that you were watching, right? So that's why TV was so lowest common denominator Like when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, right? And it was sitcoms and cop shows um, and uh, whatever, cheesy soap operas, procedural dramas, that kind of thing. There wasn't much variety. Um, And none of it was original or daring, right? TV was the idiot box. Um, So you had to go to the movies to see anything original and interesting and daring and cool. That, That was... Like the reason one of the reason you became a movie lover is because you wanted something smarter than what you could see on TV. Um, so obviously, because economic models changed with the rise of streaming and premium cable in the 2000s, suddenly TV was the home of the smartest stuff. So people started going to movies less because you didn't need to go to the movies to see an interesting original drama which is what, the only way you could go find one in the 90s.
1: It's been bugging me in the last few years when you talk to old-school uh, old, old school film fans who don't watch the peak TV. Like They really yeah. don't have an idea that, in terms of if you're watching content with adult sophistication, um, yeah. TV's just kicking movies' ass, and they have su- of course. it consistently for years. And Right. It, um, well, do you... This is a weird question uh, to ask, it's, but... Um, it, it, I don't. I'm. I i do not want to blame short attention spans on why kids watch more stuff on YouTube. But at mm-hmm. the same time, because I'd like to think it's just more convenient and um, they can um, curate what they watch a little more easier. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there's there's not going to be any emergence of like feature length stuff on YouTube, is there? Or is it? Is there a correlation between it and say like Netflix streaming? Because no yes. one we used to not think that uh, a movie could be shown on the internet and or a long form TV show. And now, you know, it's what we watch. It's it replaced TV. It is.
0: Here's what I would say. I mean, I don't, I don't sound like I'm think this generation is, is dumber or whatever. It's just, that's never true. I totally but, agree. I, that, that's, but, but I will say is like, we, because there were fewer options, like we, like, at least I know growing up, like I was sort of, you know, I had to go to the movies. There's a lot of stuff I kind of still wanted to see that was only in the movies, and therefore I had to develop the the patience and the attention span to sit through something that was two two and a half hours long, because a lot of the most interesting stuff that's where it was. You um, so know, I so I, you know, to be anecdotal, right? But I have a son who just turned eight, and he likes mo- like he he will tell you he often is resistant to seeing movies. That's what I would say. Really. Um, Yes, he really is. I mean he lo- he likes certain movies for sure. When I get him out and when I get him out or I sit it more, I put it on, he'll often sit through it. But his first choice is always to watch something on Netflix or something on YouTube. And there's two sorts, there's two things I see about his consumption that's different. One is yes, he would prefer to watch something short because it's sort of easier in his brain and he's used to it. And that's what I probably would have preferred if I had the option when I was a little kid, but there wasn't as much of that option. So for him, it's like a little bit more demanding to watch a film, and he's never in the mood to do that. And the other thing is he loved binging stuff, right? Like his idea of entertainment is once you like something – there's like 50 of them to watch right so it's a some he loves youtube gamer videos and they push new ones like every day that whatever that
1: is such a weird phenomenon to me it's, i mean yes. or to our generation i guess but yes
0: it totally is it totally is south park did a great episode making fun of it about health uh, which i won't go into but yeah like i grew up liking video games and my parents thought that was weird but now i'm like you know i why are you watching people play games play them yourself but whatever that's you know, we're all that's always going to happen. And it's, I can't say that these gamers are any dumber than like the after-school cartoons I used to watch, right. There's a difference. But, um, the other reason, yeah, why he's resistant to movies is saying, you know, when he finds something he likes, he watches, he expects a lot of it. So whether it's a gamer on YouTube or some new show on Netflix or Hulu, you know, he can always binge it and he can watch, you know, especially if it's an old thing, he can find dozens and dozens of episodes of it. So for him, when he watches one new movie, the idea that there's nothing more to watch it's very frustrating to him.
1: Once uh, he's actually into something.
0: Yeah. Then he's like, when's the next one? He has been bugged. Like, he loved the, ju- the new Jumanji film with Dwayne Johnson and Jack Black. He loved it. That's what it was. His favorite movie. He's been bugging me nonstop since two years ago. When's the next one coming? Okay, uh, It's very hard for him to comprehend that it would, that they wouldn't have another one already made, you know? So that's, that's another thing that the internet has changed. I think in young people's con- consumption that is makes it hard for the movies to appeal to them
1: um one of the um, insights I read from your book uh was about um the you know um marvel particularly inadvertently inventing the uh shared universe idea and it it becoming this completely organic brand new way of making sequels without having the same old rules of sequels where you had to like um, you know, bring all the original cast and crew back or something like that, or you were beholden yeah. to a lot of, um, and um, I don't know, maybe I'm reading into it, but I thought one of the more interesting aspects to it was the, um, the, the, um, the desirability of having a brand like that was that there was um, some in, in already in marketing costs that if you, you just, you already had your mar a giant chunk of your marketing done for you.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's there's a reason why Marvel films have been so consistently successful, right? I mean, they haven't had a flop since uh, the Hulk movie back in 2009. Um, and a huge part of that is the power of the brand. Now, Marvel, I mean, Marvel and Disney that owns them now, doesn't they don't play it too safe. I mean, they uh, or they do play it safe rather, I should say. They still spend plenty of money marketing each film, but not as much as you would normally have to to get a massive billion dollar film like that off the ground you know um because yeah people know i'm a marvel fan and they just want to see the next marvel movie and there's so many people who go to see all of them um or certainly certainly see a lot of them they certainly are going to see you know every avengers movie or every spider-man film so it's they have the brand and they have many brands within it i mean it's it's really brilliant in the current environment it's a way to stand out it's a way to appeal to foreign audiences that really like uh you know they really like western brands whether it's apple or louis vuitton uh, or in you know or marvel um so and yeah as, as you said nobody in hollywood before that had ever conceived that you could do it without just having a sequel with bringing back the cast and the director which inevitably takes two or three years um marvel's insight to basically borrow from the comic books and have the shared universe where the stories can interweave and connect and then all of a sudden you have two or three uh, installments if we would call them or maybe i think episodes is kind of the right term every year are you a,
1: you're I. i i saw some glean something on your twitter are you a comic book fan
0: i am yep i grew up reading comics and i still read some yeah
1: yeah i'm still a consistent reader i find it so fascinating to me the, the success of marvel also is just mm-hmm. the fact that they brought um serialized storytelling to big budgets and yeah. ser- serialized storytelling and filmmaking got really popular you know 90s with the tv and i mean there's i've, I've always heard people cite like um wise guy is one of the ones the first ones that did really good serialized stuff or i forget um uh there was a michael mann show in the late uh 80s but for me i remember first one i ever paid attention to was buffy and Mm -hmm. we joss weed and its creator constantly cites um chris claremont's uh uncanny men run as a big Mm. um inspiration for doing that and it's just it's so funny that you know if you look at comic creators, Chris Claremont may not have health insurance right now. Maybe he does. Yeah, maybe right. he doesn't. But yeah. he created like, but him or Stanley or someone like that or so many comic creators how it died in obscurity and poorness. Like they created this format inadvertently in the movie industry.
0: John. Yes, that's absolutely right. I think I think uh, I mean it's a bit of a side thing, but yeah, I think as even though they get something that they get, some, they get a little bit of credit, and I'm sure they get some money now. Like. The comic book creators, I think, are so undervalued and underpaid for what they have, what they have, the the ideas they brought to Hollywood that have created billions of dollars this century.
1: I know Warner's for a while was um, when they got rid of uh, Vertigo as being a creator-owned thing. They were starting to treat comics as their fielder team, almost of of, of IP. It felt like. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, they definitely, they definitely, you know, that's that's sort of the way they justify the DC Comics business. Like DC Comics is just some for a company like. You know, Time Warner, let alone AT&T Time Warner, it's so sort of tiny, tiny little thing. And, you know, it makes a tiny profit, but barely any. But they, they could theoretically they can make more money off that capital by making one more film per year or something. But, you know, they justify it in large part by saying, hey, we're this is how we're we are. Coming up with new characters and storylines, or where we're keeping them relevant and we're refreshing them. It's a bunch of, It's like in a. It's like an R and D lab essentially for the movie and TV business. The way they
1: look at it. That's so weird. No one treats the publishing industry like an R and D uh, lab. But that's that's another rant elsewhere. Um yeah. You also posted on Twitter. Um, um, you had seemed like you had some opinions on the big. Um, was it this week that the Paramount decree that was that started to go yeah. down? Yeah. It was
0: it was was last week, I believe, that the Justice Department announced that they were filing to sort of relax it and let it go. Um, And yes, which for people who don't know, just means that there were these rules that said movie studios uh, can own theaters and they couldn't uh, do tactics that uh, sort of monopolize theaters. like something called block booking, where it says if you want to if you want to play one movie, you have to play every other movie from the studio this year where they you know, if you want Star Wars, you got to take every Disney film that we're releasing this year um and and this they this went
1: out in like 48 was the yeah. um, the supreme court was it that took it down it was a,
0: yeah it was a supreme the supreme court ruled that it was anti that it was anti-competitive for movie studios to own theaters and engage in some of these tactics and to, to deal with that the justice department and this and paramount and other studios reach what's known as the paramount consent degrees and the studios agreed they wouldn't own theaters they wouldn't do any deals where where only one theater chain could get a movie and nobody else would have access to it. And they wouldn't engage in block booking where if you want were doing a deal for one film, it involves other films. You have to do a deal for one film at a time. Um, and so those are all now going to be relaxed and go away. Not all immediately. Some of it's going to happen over time. I don't think you'll see any massive changes you know, immediately in 2020. But over time, you will start to see <coughs> potentially either studios or the tech companies that make movies like you know Amazon or Apple oh. buying 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 movie theaters, buying movie theater chains, even is totally possible. You'll start. You could start to see some exclusive deals where maybe uh, maybe Jumanji three only plays in AMC theaters and won't be in any Regal theaters. That's possible. Um,
1: what is the yeah. impetus for this? I mean, I saw Marriage Stories playing at the, or they were talking about having Netflix uh, was going to mm-hmm. have a year round movie for some of the, or year round theater in New York yep. for some of yeah. the
0: they bought yeah so so netflix bought this one indie theater in in new york on so a special case and exception but the general impetus for why the justice department's relaxing is is they're saying <coughs> it's not really a competitive concern for studios to own theaters or do these exclusive deals with theaters because movies are no longer the dominant form of entertainment like i was discussing at the time in the 40s movies were the main form of entertainment so if you dominated if a movie studio dominating everything from production all the way through distribution in the theaters they were essentially dominating the entertainment industry you just blew now,
1: my mind man I, I don't know if you saw me but i just had an aha moment with that i that's that's i i don't know i had some like deeply more sinister like steve <laughs> maninchin wanted to get back in the film business after oh no, just, no 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 no
0: no no, it's that it's the rise of net. I mean, I think it's very justifiable. It's debatable whether it's good or bad, but it's not crazy. It's, I mean, now we have think about like, in, like Netflix does own. They're totally vertically integrated. They produce their shows, most of their shows. They produce themselves, and they they release it all the way to consumers. Nobody, no, but nobody else is involved, right? And clearly, streaming is one of the dominant forms of entertainment so why should movies have to be different is the argument why if if netflix can own production all the way through distribution why can't warner brothers do the same thing for their movies that go into theaters that's 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 the argument
1: i want to ask you um have you is there um any reporting that's been done about uh, how netflix is um their tax accounting or um about um, just stuff with like giant write-offs because their argument is that they're building a library and that they have an economic model that's never been seen before.
0: I am not an expert on their tax accounting, so I would be hesitant to comment on that. I could, I would, may make a fool of myself. I can speak generally. I mean, generally, I know about how Netflix loses a lot of money, and um, I don't know if this is what you're referring to. Maybe not. Sometimes Netflix reports that they're profitable, but they're very cash flow negative. Um, ca- and what that means is they can, due to accounting rules, they can say they're making a profit because the cost of a show is usually amortized over 10 years, meaning if they spend $100 million to make a season of Stranger Things, they don't have to account for all $100 million this year. They can be $10 million a year for the next 10 years because that's the show. The idea is the show will be watched over the next 10 years, and it is, so they don't have to account for all the costs now. But they'd be cash flow negative because in reality, they're, they're spending all that money right now, right? So, And that's cash flow. Well, so Netflix can, Netflix can report a profit, but in reality, they're 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 spending more money than they're taking in, which is why they keep having to issue debt. They take that why they have a fair amount of debt.
1: Well, the economic model here is to build a library, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. They're building a library, and they're growing. They're gro- you're growing fast and building a library, and the idea is they invest in that now, and they're very well positioned in the future to be to be you know completely dominant in the streaming business, and you know think about it like you know when they yeah you know, when they make a show now it's going to be available forever so there'll be a new generation of kids discovering stranger things in 2023 and in 2033 right and that won't cost them any more money to make them so these are long term investments
1: was that in the argument. was that the big factor in Disney trying to buy Fox and get their library
0: yeah absolutely because if you want to have a if you want to have a streaming a big streaming business and compete with Netflix you need the big a big library is great because pe- people in streaming, people come in the door for the originals, right? Like, people often sign up because they want to see The Mandalorian or they want to see Orange is a New Black or whatever it may be. But if, if that's all you have, then they watch and then they cancel, right? But then they watch that and they're like, oh, there's this whole library of other stuff to watch. Um, and Disney wanted a really big library, and Fox gives them a significant one that they can use both on Disney+, Plus and where, for example, they have The Simpsons now, right? They From Fox, they have a 200-plus or probably more, several hundred episodes of The Simpsons up that will keep people engaged. And they also got control of Hulu, and a lot of the Fox content is very good for Hulu, which Disney also wants to be a vibrant streaming business.
1: Um, one of the things you talked about in the book is Disney's current strategy, which is really successful for them, and um, is to just remake old movies, and remake That's- old movies for kids. and. and um, then they keep looking at things like a wrinkle of time and say like, well, that we originals or adaptations aren't working for us anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are they going to apply that to their Fox properties now like that?
0: Yeah. I think you will. I think you will see. I mean, they just announced that they're doing a new, um, a new planet of the apes, right. And it hasn't been, hasn't been that long since the last, uh, planet of the apes movie came out, Right. but they're seeing, Hey, there's some value in that IP. We're going to try to ring it for all it's worth. Um, and i think uh you know obviously avatar they see is having a lot of value yeah they're, they're looking through the fox library and anything they think could become a franchise for them whether on film or tv or streaming i should say disney going to ring it for all it's worth and you're going to see less and less original stuff coming out of fox even something like fox, like ford versus ferrari which is done pretty well was a fox movie Back then kind i of think it's just not a priority for disney because there's no there's no spin-offs there's no sequels there's no theme park rides or merchandise it's just a one and done um that you know, as that kind of content, of course, is going to be just for streaming platforms in the future. You're not going to see much of it yet released uh, theatrically. Um,
1: I guess. Um, are you familiar with uh, Karina Longworth's uh, podcast? You must remember this. Yes. Have you see, have you listened to any of her new season about um, Song of the South? No, I haven't. She talked about um, that basically this remake strategy is an update of the old Disney strategy of vaulting old movies where they would put movies right. in the vault and you wouldn't be have released them on home video or for release. Um, did you see that story that um, Disney was either telling some theaters that they were going to start uh, vaulting some Fox movies like um, it was like a Fight Club and Aliens mm-hmm. or Die Hard or something like that?
0: I didn't see that story, but that's actually kind of smart. I think that makes sense. You know, like you can imagine, Fight Club disappears for a few years, and then all of a sudden they bring it back out, and people, everybody will be talking about it and tweeting about it, and all of a sudden it's available again on Hulu or something like that. That 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 could that seems like an interesting strategy.
1: Yeah, but it also just seems like there's also the possibility that they just might make mediocre remakes that. Um um are get kids to go see just because their parents told them the original was a good movie and then they just the, the you have diminishing returns of inspiration from movies or just well man
0: that's the we're, we're past that point man i mean you know did you see beauty and the beast or lion king or you know cinderella or the jungle book i mean that that disney has done that to huge success and those films you know By and large, have not been let's say I don't think the most like uh, creatively inspired films that have come out of Hollywood recently. So Disney, they look at it and they're like, you know, as Bob Iger said to me and is in the book, like they're treating movie business like a business first and foremost, right? So if this works, they're going to keep doing it, and if they see Fox properties that they could do the same thing to, they're absolutely going to do that.
1: I guess part of the reason I brought up YouTube, and um, I have a kind of larger thesis here that, um, and I've, I've been complaining about it for years, being working occasionally in the film industry, that um, I'm curious if you how you feel about this, that um, the constant going for the uh, treating it more like a business, the constant lowest common denominator practice, the um, just getting blood from a stone it feels like of of creativity in hollywood do you think there's any kind of um the the um studios in particular the movie making studios have set themselves up for um whether it's App- apple or 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 some entrepreneur enterprising filmmakers oh. on the internet or from silicon valley to uh, overtake their hold on uh, if not just feature films but I don't know, entertainment or in general? Um, Is that extreme?
0: I think that's extreme. Look, first of all, if they were only movie companies, then I'd say more so, right? But all the big media companies also have streaming platforms where they're doing plenty of original content. Um, Disney, perhaps somewhat aside, um, but HBO Max is going to have tons of it. Peacock does, you know, Disney owns Hulu, which has some. Um, So I think, you know, it's just like original content is going to the streaming platforms which is where the tech companies already are um i don't think i don't think you're going to see apple or you know i mean we've seen it with netflix like they're not all of a sudden dominating at the box office netflix films are not have make no impact at the box office nobody's worried that the irishman is stealing uh, eyeballs away um amazon's movie strategy has been largely unsuccessful at the box office um so as far as the movie business goes for better or worse all the evidence is that um You know, these big franchise films made by the studios are what dominates the box office. Um, uh, When it comes, but when, you know, when it comes to streaming, um, you know, uh, the studios don't have any particular advantage. They have their library, but, um, you know, if Apple makes great shows, people are going to watch Apple TV+. And if Amazon makes great shows, they'll watch more of Amazon Prime. And if Disney Plus makes great shows, they'll watch that, HBO Max, you name it. Um, So you're just, you're going to see lots of original stuff in in streaming and if the studios don't have great content on the streaming platforms they will lose to the tech companies you're right when it comes when it comes to the box office it's i don't think the tech companies care
1: um i did want to ask you what is the current state of apple's streaming service like did they i mean they i feel like didn't they post some big numbers but the general perception was that it was a little
0: underwhelming yeah i mean the there's no question that i mean it's not great for apple to come out of the gate with i believe four major new shows all of which got mixed reviews and since they have no library the platform relies entirely on these original shows and they got very mixed response so i don't people may have checked it out especially if they already have apple devices and it's free but ultimately apple tv plus is not going to make much of an impact unless they have a a consistent string of successful shows and because they have no library even if they come even if one show is great people may watch that and then okay i'm done is
1: there anything lined up to change that or anything on the horizon
0: they have a bunch of stuff right they have an n night Shyamalan show coming very soon they have a bunch of other stuff in development um i have but who, who knows if who knows if it's going to be good what i will say is like trying to build a streaming service without a library is very very hard nobody else has done it amazon has a, a amazon licenses a bunch of old stuff um obviously netflix has a library that they license and they're building i mean disney has one all the media companies have one everybody has one apple is the only one trying to do it without a library so that is very very hard to do
1: um speaking of amazon what's the current state of um uh the amazon studios because i know at least on facebook one of my favorite reads is uh, ted hope and he's yep. he, he seems to be one of the most insightful forward-thinking people in the movie business at least yep. so what he's,
0: he's a he's a really smart guy and he's one of the people really keeping the torch alive for indie film um but amazon's look a- amazon's tv shows have done reasonably well right i mean they've had they've had hits and misses but they're doing reasonably well um uh they've done better i think on the prestige end of things like transparent and fleabag and not as well yet in terms of making you know real mainstream big hits like on the scale of game of thrones or stranger things and they really want that that's one of the reasons they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a lord of the ring show just for example um so they're still looking for that really big mainstream hit but uh they're doing reasonably well on TV, and their their movie strategy. They, unlike Netflix, decided they were gonna they were gonna really focus on indie films, and they were gonna release them theatrically first. And they, by and large, that has not been very successful for them. They've had a lot of flops, both that movies that have flopped both at the box office and also in terms of buzz and critics, you know, crit- critics' responses. Well, are they,
1: um, are they going, I thought I saw a story the other day that said they were kind of retreating slightly from indies, at least.
0: They but, are. I think they are, because they've they've gotten their butt kicked so much. And last last year they tried again. They bought a bunch of movies at Sundance, like Late Night and um, the, the Report, uh, both of which have not made the kind of impact Amazon hoped for, to say the least. So I think they're retreating a little bit from that. Maybe they're going to focus more on genre films. If they're already doing more direct to streaming or very short window go to streaming rather than traditional box office windows, I think they'll see more of that. And um, it's not you know I have a chapter in the book about Amazon being a bit of the savior of the indie film business, and that was true at the time, but it's much more in question now. Their their film strategy has not been that successful.
1: What is the savior of the film business right now?
0: <laughs> uh,
1: or indie film, any specifically?
0: I mean. Uh, if all you care about is them getting made, then I think streaming is still fine. You know, like I think we'll still see plenty of those kind of stuff on streaming. I mean, you know, The Irishman, Marriage Story, and The Two Popes are three great films, right? All from Netflix this fall, just for example. But they're clearly made to be seen on streaming and 99% of people are gonna see them on their TVs or tablets or whatever, not in the theater. Um, So as 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 long as you just want it for them to get made and you don't care where you see them, then streaming platforms like Netflix and Hulu, Hulu, I think, is going to do a lot of films with Fox Searchlight. I think those are that's a vibrant future for those people who care about seeing them in theaters. Um, uh, there's no saviors on the horizon. You know, I mean, it's not looking good. I mean, you know, A24 is still out there and they'll keep going, and that's great. And Searchlight will release their films in theaters to a limited extent but it's never going to go back to what it was in the 90s and early 2000s in terms of theatrical releases for indie films.
1: Mm. Um, do you, you, I don't know what there, happened last year, but wasn't it two years ago that there weren't any um, major um, sales at uh, Sundance except for um, Amazon and Netflix buying, or maybe it was only Amazon was buying stuff?
0: Yeah, I think this past year... The winter of 2019 yeah amazon was the only major buyer
1: do you see that changing uh, for they just announced the sundance titles yesterday or two days ago well, when, so. when we're recording had,
0: amazon amazon got kind of burned on their release on their purchases so i don't see that changing also the companies that do like companies that are making kind of prestige films like netflix amazon um fox search or they're more and more focused on making those themselves as opposed to uh Buying them out, I suppose, buying them at festivals. So you're gonna that, that I don't see that business becoming very big anymore, um, and the kind of purchases you'll see at those festivals will be smaller. Um, I probably I need to go in a few minutes.
1: Sure, I, I was so. going to wind down. I want last question was what are the best movies you've seen this year?
0: Um, let's see, uh, well, the best movie I've seen this year. It's not original thought, but it's true. It's Parasite. I mean, I think it's just a brilliant, brilliant film. It's funny. It's scary. It's got great social commentary. I think it's the best film that filmmaker has made by a long shot. I kind of thought Snowpiercer was weird, had a lot of flaws. And I think like this movie addresses the same themes so much smarter. I loved it. Um,
1: I'm nodding my I, head emphatically with you if yes. to, to illustrate what's happening on radio, but yeah. Um,
0: sorry. Yeah. I, I also, so that's my favorite film by far. I, re, I really liked Midsommar. I really liked uh, the art of self-defense with Jesse Eisenberg. Um,
1: I uh, I know the editor of that.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I thought it was very. That was a very smart and funny film, um, and I really like the Irishman. Also, not original, um, but not, not original thought, but it's a great film. Um, that's kind of it. I, the sad thing, this to me, this year is I haven't seen. There haven't been any like of the big tentpole franchise films that I thought were, I thought were really great. Um, so, and you, usually there's a few of them in a year that I think really do stand out and um i didn't i didn't love joker and um
1: also uh, ever... also nodding emphatically also nodding
0: i see yeah and um uh i don't know you know i don't think there's been i don't think there been any other ones that really stand out to me this year
1: well on that note uh ben fritz i want to thank you for being on the podcast it's my pleasure thank you for having me thanks so much